वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द यूफोरिया द हमड्रम विल थिंक अबाउट द एबन फ्लो ऑफ पार्टली इमोशन रिवन फिनोमिना सच एज लव पोलिटिकल रेवल्यूशन एंड कंज्यूमरिज्म अदर्स must hedonists be ashamed are revolutions ever spontaneous how did the russian revolution happen why do revolutions happen the way they do is the experience of consumerism inauthentic or does it enhance human bonds where does any kind of idealism come from how do social cultural personal and political domains interact is consumption itself an act of love what keeps love alive what do we feel deeply about and what's the future of change in tedium and how we identify ourselves we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor craig brandest His research interests are cultural theory and intellectual history, especially of the early Soviet Union. He is from University of Sheffield. Professor Raja Halwani, he is a professor of philosophy at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. His research interests are moral and political philosophy and the philosophy of sex and love. And Professor Sanjay Srivastava, he is a professor of social anthropology. at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi his research interests are in urban and consumer cultures so uh craig why don't we set the ball rolling with you um we'll get to the specifics of uh, russian revolution which you've obviously thought about from a variety of vantage points over the years but if you were to take a stab at this question of how do revolutions happen is there is there a way of thinking about it in a slightly meta way and obviously every revolution is specific and so on but to the extent that one has to generalize it a little bit is do you see an arc do you see a pattern do you see phases uh, and both both systemically as well as you know how it's organized what holds it together what what takes it up what lets it go down Well, absolutely, there are many different kinds of revolutions, and at different points, uh, different things come to the fore. But always, there's a confluence of organic problems and more conjunctural issues that come together. Um, there's many different dimensions to it. Usually, economic, political, but also cultural, wider artistic movements. and uh, they all interact with one another at particular times and the uh, cultural aspects for example and you know I'll, I'll let you continue are they are they an effect of what happens or they are intermingled on the causal side as well or intermingled from the very beginning and uh, but they then develop in certain ways like for example in the russian revolution the uh, radical artistic movements existed well before the revolution really took off but then were given a particular direction by the uh, social and political movements with which they converged um, right and so uh, addressing say the moribund nature of the official culture of the russian empire at, at, at that time 
um, and this sense that something had to change then converges with uh, social, political, institutional change that gave artistic movements a sense that they could become socially effective mm-hmm. um, in given conditions. Um, so there are these n- number of different dimensions that come together. Um, they form different kinds of um, constellations, uh, but always in... What do you mean one... by that? Well, um, if we talk about political revolutions and uh, so, uh, social transformations, um, then it may be that things begin at the level of intellectual dissent Right. And later this converges with wider socio-political movements such as workers' movement and so on. Or it may be that uh, a, a more narrowly economic set of demands put forward by particular uh, groups of people then broaden and uh, converge with uh, other things as uh, they become more conscious of their potential power and the significance of their own particular issues in relationship to other things. So, And when you say confluence, Craig, it, it, does it does just all happen by itself or you, you think there's a big role to for, for a leader or a leadership structure or something to that effect? How spontaneous is it? Now, I, again, I understand these things are never cut and dry, but mm. how does one think about it? Well... I always uh, like Trotsky's uh, notion when people used to talk about the February Revolution in Russia as being a spontaneous revolution. And this he, is the 1917. The 1917 uh, in February. And uh, uh, one of the things he points out there is that when historians say that something was spontaneous, what they really mean is they don't know what happened. <laughs> and this means mm. that uh, there are always um, people taking initiatives, there are always people formulating certain ways forward, recommending certain courses of action, involved in publishing things, even handing out leaflets or whatever. It never is the case that anything is simply spontaneous. Uh, Nature doesn't have pure spontaneity. Um, Always these things are intermingled. The question is whether the historical record um, includes traces of particular types of Leadership, and so there always is a leadership. So, but but do you go to the extent of saying that it's planned? Now, a revolution doesn't just happen in February nineteen seventeen, right? Does it? Do you build towards that? There's an element of uh, uh, yeah. predetermination to where it's going. Again, I don't mean it in super historical terms, but just more in logistical terms. Well, there's a rising level of workers' discontent in uh, nineteen seventeen. Uh, as the First World War goes badly for Russia and it picks up on the traditions and developments that had happened in 1905 after the revolution there. So those things come to the fore. Then there are you know, there's significant numbers of strikes that start to take place. People are organising those strikes. Um, people are going around talking to their workmates, giving out leaflets, um, planning certain demonstrations. There are always... Uh, number of people who play a leadership role. So there are uh, hints beforehand that something like this might be around the corner. Yes, clearly the, the, the conflicts and the problems are there. Um, the thing is that ni- uh, between February and October 1917, then you get the emergence of a particular political body, um, the Bolshevik Party, that is able to play a leading role in the workers' Soviets that uh, grow up in Russia at that time. Um, but and that's how Sovi- Lenin comes in there. 
Yes, indeed. But the workers' Soviets themselves were not a product of the Bolshevik Party. Right. In fact, <laughs> initially when they first appeared, they didn't really know what to do about them. Uh, they appeared first in 1917. So only later did they see, start to view this as a potential embryo for a new type of society. And what's your intuition on this? I know Trotsky said that revolutions can't be spontaneous. Would you, would you by and large be on the same page as him? On this issue, yes. Uh, certainly my <laughs> own my own experience of uh, being involved in trade union movement and so on over the years is that somebody has to go around and do the legwork in the difficult times to ensure that there is some kind of coherent organisation. Otherwise, um, everything becomes dissipated. And right. so it's a matter of... Uh, if the problems are already there, if the uh, the sentiments are already there, but they don't have a particular direction, then it's very important that uh, there are people with some level of uh, intellectual coherence that give that give these things some coherence and some uh, direction, right, uh, right, and some structure, right. Um, and it's a and, it, and it's a dynamic interaction between those different factors that are going on at the time that make a difference as to whether a, a revolutionary situation develops as a whole. But also it depends just on the level of the um, the conflicts and the crises that are also exist on the level of ruling class uh, at the time. So Lenin said at one point that for a revolution to take place, it isn't sufficient for workers not to be willing to live in the old way the ruling class has to be unable to live in the old way. And so those uh, two things coming together in um, a uh, particular conjuncture um, is what makes significant social change possible. Interesting. Raja, what about love? I mean, is it spontaneous? Um, and, you know, I think at least the way Craig has set this stage for us and obviously in a very different setting, you know, he's used notions like moribund and there's something that gives you a signal that something might be afoot, something around the corner. I mean, how does one think of love more generally? And, you know, obviously there are different aspects. I, mean, I, was, I was thinking about whether we can think, you, you, you mean romantic love in particular, right? Yes, not love, Not other forms of love. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about whether we can think of romantic love as some sort of an individual revolution that happens within a person. But let's not go there <laughs> because that's a is little that, bit is difficult. Is that too wrong? Uh, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I haven't thought about conceptualizing it this way. I, was, I just started thinking about it when I was listening to Craig talking about revolutions. But um, the, the, the dominant literature about romantic love is that it is to some extent spontaneous. I mean, I mean obviously, um, obviously a, a person can meet someone and can develop uh, deep feelings of affection that can be called romantic love towards that person after a while, after knowing that person for a while. But um, the dominant cultural narrative about romantic love, and you find this pretty much in every culture, uh, old and new, basically, um, which is not the same as saying that all cultures revered romantic love in the same way. That's sure. a different issue. But you do find in the dominant literature, in the literature that love is a spontaneous thing. It basically happens uh, for um, unknown reasons. And, it, and this phenomenon of love has actually raised a large number of philosophical puzzles about romantic love, which I can, I can go into a couple of them if you'd like me to. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's and, the And that's if one takes a step back, does it have an arc? I mean, does it, does it, does it peak? And again, thinking yes, of obviously. It. I mean, it seems to be the, the most common experience is that rom romantic love has 
uh, two or three stages, basically, where there's the first stage, it's called the passionate stage. Uh, some people call it infatuation. Um, with, this is the st- you, you don't like, like that term or you're okay with that infatuation? Um, I don't know. Some philosophers have tried to make a distinction between infatuation and genuine romantic love in its passionate stages. Right. I don't think any of those attempts have succeeded. So for all I care, I think we can call them either infatuation or the passionate stage and of love. And what's the theoretical difficulty with that? With- uh, the theoretical difficulty is that, so for example, you can try to distinguish infatuation from romantic love by saying that infatuation is a form of obsession with the beloved, that doesn't work because passionate love is like that. Another way to distinguish it is that it's unrequited love, basically. Right. Right. Uh, that's not going to distinguish it either because people fall in love and they are unrequi- the love is unrequited. Uh, some people have uh, claimed that infatuation is brief, whereas passionate love is not. Um, that's another hard distinction to make because some romantic loves are brief and some infatuations are are pretty long, basically. So, um, so I, so I'm, I'm not sure we can make a distinction there. But um, after that, you do have, um, you do have what is called the settling phase, mm-hmm. in which the passions calm down, and the love, if successful, if it, if it succeeds after that stage, and I think a lot of loves fail after that stage, actually. Um, if it succeeds, the love is transformed into something calmer, more settled. It becomes more akin to friendship love, to right. companion love. Um, and, and does one does one think of the notion of commitment around you? Is 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 that is that and again I don't mean marriage, right? So it's not right, in those right, terms, right. but because there's this whole business of commitment isn't there. I mean that's the case with revolutions as well. I mean there is a point where a decision is made. And and that, that that kind of gives a certain kind of permanence to you know whatever force there is that has to keep going. Absolutely. So I so I think, but I think that the notion of commitment can come in. You can think of it in in various ways. So one way to think of commitment is in an organic way, homegrown way, so to speak. So this this notion of commitment, which I think is more basic than the decision one, mm-hmm. um, is the sense in which you yourself feel that you belong to that person. Right. Whether it's in the passionate stage or whether it's in the settled stage, you feel either because the emotions are too strong towards that person that you don't want to be with, with anyone else or by yourself. And then in the more settled stage, the commitment comes from the, the just the history that you have shared with that person up, up to that point, basically. And the, the common values together, because I think love is hard to sustain if you don't have a certain amount of common values between the two people or more if it, we're talking about a polyamorous relationship. And then usually some sort of self Conscious decision will probably build on that, basically. And I'm, I'm, I'm just talking here psychologically more, more so than, than philosophically, basically. Of course, of course. And Sanjay, is there, uh, you know, you've thought about consumer cultures and so on. Would it be, how accurate or inaccurate would it be to say that we fall in love with, you know, products or inanimate objects and so on, or experiences or brands or whatever, right? One can, one can take a pick of any entity which is somewhat tinged by consumerism in almost the same way in which we fall in love with individuals and so on. Is, is that a similarity? Is that is that something worth thinking about? Well, well I guess you can, but perhaps not, uh, not, not in the same way. Uh, so, you know, within anthropology, for example, there is a substantial amount of literature which talks about why objectification, what we understand as objectification, is primarily a problem within Western philosophy, not so much within you know, non-Western society, at least historically, where 
people had a certain kind of relationship with objects mm-hmm. and often imagined themselves as objects without it being a problem of any kind, if you know what I mean. Right. Without it being a problem of any kind. So I think what has happened is that romantic love, at least in the non-Western context, has increasingly become uh, uh, much more a part of consumer culture. So it's difficult to disentangle the love for objects uh, uh, from the love for another human being. And but I it's eventually think... forming a certain kind of relation, right? Now, is there is there any... Cont- now, obviously, it sounds a little odd to put yeah. human beings in the, same, in the same category as objects, but is, is forming a relation the more fundamental thing? With, it could be with objects, it could be with... Uh, with, with... Yeah, I mean, I think human relationships are increasingly mediated through, through objects mm-hmm. without it being a problem. problem. Uh, for, for for large numbers of people. I think it's also anxiety for maybe social scientists and analysts who kind of think of consumerism as inauthentic and and, and surface. Uh, is it is it so? How does one think about that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Maybe 15 years ago, I would have said, yes, that this is all kind of fake and, you know, but then you have to dismiss a very large number of people whose life worlds are constituted through consumer culture. And we need to think about what that means, especially in kind of post, so-called post-socialist societies where consumption was seen as immoral at right. an earlier point in time. Right. So for many people, it's an act of autonomy, an act of self-development. It's an act where you can do something by yourself and for yourself. And it's also an act whereby people... Um, uh, seem to have this sense of uh, of control over time. So mm-hmm. you can do something immediately rather than wait for the state, uh, the, the socialist state, which will take forever. And consumerism seems to be something that, um, whether being in love with someone, being uh, attracting someone to yourself via the context of consumerism through cards or gifts, it's something that's imagined as immediate. Whereas the longer history of sort of societies in this part of the world is that things don't happen for a long time, you know, either because you're depending on the family or the kin network or the state and things don't happen. But consumerism seems to have given people the idea that you have much more control over your, over your life. And it's almost like a sense of autonomy that as opposed to a to sort of a not too distant past. So it's becomes... But dif- are, there, are there trade-offs here? Is, is this at the, at the cost of something deeper? Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting question again because as a social scientist, as an anthropologist, I was always taught that there are certain kinds of relationships which are deep, like, like religion and kinship and uh, family. But did you did you count the romantic love or love in, in, even in that, that category? Yes, that, indeed. That's okay. if, yes, even that as something that is forever, or I mean, it may not be, of course, in practice. But at least the notion of romantic love was about purity. Sure. Right. And But if you now look around us, I mean, I think something has changed dramatically. So large numbers of people, for example, use Tinder, for example, right? There are no, there's no family involved. There's no lineage involved. And there's the notion that, that uh, I think there's been a move away from that idea of pure love to, uh, uh, to, to the constant notion, a notion of constant choice that you can, at some point, you will find that perfect love. But it's kind of ironic because pure love is supposed to be once once and forever. But increasingly, people think that through Tinder or whatever it is, where you swipe left or right, where uh, you can, there's always the possibility of finding that perfect love. Which And the, I think the big change has been, I think, that people think that you can, that there is something called perfect a perfect love or a perfect relationship. It's just a matter of looking. And you will know when you find it. 
Whereas an earlier point in so time, it's been yeah. reduced to a search problem almost. It's it's a search problem. I think reduced to the notion. Not well, I, did, I don't know if reduced is because I don't want to sound. I don't have any moral position on this. Sure. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, so I think it's it's the idea of I think people feel empowered that they have some form of control that they know when they will come across true love. So I think the problem, if there is a problem, is that this notion that. That an imperfect relationship is uh, is is an aberration, whereas, I mean, I don't know what a perfect relationship is, but I think what consumer culture has done that you know if you, this is this is not good for you, you can find something else that's good for you till you keep looking. You will know. I don't know whether we ever know, but people seem to think that now you know what a good pure relationship will so be. So it's just a longer exploratory kind of phase, right? And obviously, it's different from. So in a way, the way you interact with and scan products is more or less the way in which you, you know, this. Yeah, you. Yeah, I think you could is, say is that, that without is that too simplistic. No, I don't think it's simplistic. I think uh, I mean I wouldn't have said this 15 years ago, but I don't any longer have a kind of a moral position. I mean I don't think it's any more authentic or authentic than anything else. Uh, 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 the you know. Uh, because then I would have to dismiss a very large number of people around the world and say these are all fools and suffer from some kind of false consciousness. Uh, I don't know what people do. And then I, w- I would have to say I know, exa- I know exactly what makes people happy. Right. I have no idea what makes people happy. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's why can, I do- can there be such a thing as false love? I mean, fall, I think this whole business of false cons- consciousness or whatever. I mean, where are you on some, some of these um, questions? I just wanted to say something. It's very interesting what Sanjay was saying because um, I think when you look at dating culture right mm-hmm. now, you do find this idea that I'm going to keep searching until I find the perfect relationship, whether it's Tinder or Match.com or whatever it is. But I think the idea of being in love with someone is still Culturally speaking, I think immune. So, for example, suppose the latest iPhone. That idea is still robust. Right, yeah, it's still robust. Suppose, for example, the latest iPhone comes up, all right? That's the best iPhone ever. I go and buy it, okay? Then after a year or so. you know that you have the best. Yeah, you know you have the best. So, you found it, all right? right? You have the perfect iPhone. But then after two years, a new one comes out. So, then you trade up for a better one. That doesn't quite work this way with love because there is still this cultural idea that once you fall with the person that you're meant to be with or that you love, even if you're not meant to be with that person, you don't say to yourself, I'm going to trade up after a couple of years. So all the perfection occurs prior to the right. point of falling in love. So I think that's the, these are some of the similarities and differences between the consumer, between the consumer things. Um, are there, are there uh, because in, in, in both of these situations, Craig, there's this element of exploration, right? I mean, you explore different products, you explore maybe, uh, it, now it could ebb and flow depending on which part of the history one is in. Is there an exploratory phase with uh, revolutions in the way uh, activists and political agents and parties and workers and worker movements think about things? Well, I think very much it's Because it's mobilization of another kind. It's not just an individual, right? Very much it's exploratory on, if we might term, the masses who... um, I mean, I always have problems with this notion of false consciousness because it's never the case that people have absolute 2020 vision in a matter or absolutely deluded. Uh, (laughs) Rather, uh, majority of people in society don't have any systematic view of the world. They have a mishmash of different ideas, often contradictory ideas. 
um, that if they were forced to sit down and work out that actually these things don't fit together into any kind of logical structure. But a systematic view is an intellectual artifact anyway, isn't it? Of course it would be, yes. You don't live your life day to day with with a very systematic top-down kind of thing. Yes, but there's questions of power here, aren't there, and intellectual subordination. So you've got uh, a certain experience that one might have with one's workmates, for example, about what's going on in the place that they work or their own general conditions, how the police might uh, relate to their community on the ground and so on. And then what they're told in the media about the fact that the police are very good and even-handed and that this is a a fair system and so on. And people have a mishmash of different ideas. And um, so uh, and the level at which people will um, systematise those ideas depends on the level of struggles that are going on in society where people then start to think, actually, this isn't quite what I'd, uh, what I'd uh, understood previously. So, for example, the number of people who may harbour some racist ideas, for example, may be forced to challenge those ideas if they need to unite with uh, people of different culture, different right. uh, uh, appearance uh, and so on in order to face the problems that they are dealing with. And so they have to then rethink these things. And uh, that's why political movements are so important in leading to the mass transformation of society because, as we know, most people will say, uh, okay, I don't like people of X community, but my friend such and such is all right. Right. Or the other way around, I'm not a racist, but uh, there's always that uh, contradiction. So um, obviously um, when you're actually engaged in significant organisational struggle or something like that, then you need to make some kind of sense out of those circumstances. You're forced to address these issues and therefore... Um, so it almost seems like you need a deep enough crisis for, for a whole bunch of things to come together and for because you need a critical mass, right, for yeah. something like this to happen. And you also need alternative narratives right. on offer as well because, I mean, it isn't the case that the more people suffer, the more revolutionary they become. Um, <laughs> otherwise, uh, the most revolutionary places would be the most famine-struck, and that's never the case. Uh, right. It's people who actually see that there's an alternative, and this is where it maybe comes in with this idea of love and so on. And what we're talking about there, I think, is this kind of rush of enthusiasm, which is real in a, in a revolutionary situation, where people start to believe that actually this all makes sense. Uh, uh, whole factors of my life suddenly start to line up in a in a coherent pattern, and that I become uh, enthused about uh, pursuing this form of activism, this form of activity. Um, That's interesting. Is, um, there, is there is there something systematic about love? Now, one can obviously think of it at the level of individuals and say that it happens, and this is what is happening. You use the word psychological, but is there something broader at work? Is there other different kinds of love that are in vogue at different points in time? And there's a way in which there's something social, systematic about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends on how you um, look at the questions. I mean, certainly, if you ask a biologists or some evolutionary biologists, um, they will tell you that love has a has a evolutionary explanation. And so in this respect, it is much more systematic. It's not just up to the individual, basically. You find it, uh, you find it um, as, as a pretty common phenomenon. Um, and I think even though love is uh, individual, I mean, even though the individual falls in love, um, culturally speaking, it's been pretty 
abundant, basically, although it has been understood differently, layered differently. Uh, what do you mean valued. it's abundant? I mean, you find it in, 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 in almost all cultures. Um, I know there has been a movement for a while among philosophers, those of them who were um, social constructionists, so they were denying the fact that love is... Uh, is 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 universal. They were basically saying that it came about during a certain period in European history with the troubadours and whatnot. But I think a cursory glance at various cultures, literatures would um, indicate that we are reading about romantic love, basically. Just it's somewhat thought of slightly differently. So it is definitely a pervasive phenomenon in that sense. Yeah. And and uh, Sanjay, where does boredom come into this? Because you know the other side of this. Uh rush of blood and enthusiasm and all of that and you know obviously the way in the place in the domain where it's deployed and activated and obviously manipulated maybe if that sounds like a judgmental word is is, is, is the world of goods and capitals and experiences uh, what is boredom how what is that as an entity or as an object for you as a as an anthropologist or a sociologist I think the one of the things that seems to have happened is that the uh, categories of things with which we are supposed to get bored has changed mm-hmm. uh, over the last uh, maybe five five or six decades, at least in those societies where uh, where goods and commodities are a much more recent entrant into lives, into the lives of large numbers of people. So now, for example, so at once upon a time, people did a particular kind of work or they ate a particular kind of food, had particular kinds of relationships. Um, and it was just something they did. I, the notion of boredom um, didn't, enter into that domain of one's life. But I have think, we always been bored? Well, that's yeah, that's what I'm heading towards. I, I don't know. Um, certainly, and certainly there are class differences in terms of what bores people of a particular class. Um, for large numbers well, of... What do you mean? You've been poor uh, people are less bored? No. Well, um, I'm sorry. No, I think... Again, one, one shouldn't be making statements like laws. So yeah. one gets that. So please make, make that subtle for us. Yeah. So I, what I was going to suggest is that... Um, what, say, a middle-class person, I mean a global middle-class kind of person, uh, what she or he might be bored with would, for a working-class person, poor person, would be a time for relaxation. <laughs> in the sense that... Uh, and that's been... Uh, so increasingly now, um, uh, even the kinds of things that... The, the category boredom and what it is that you are cult- supposed to be bored with has changed. So I was saying earlier that earlier it did particular kind of work, ate particular kind of food, got married or had a relationship in a particular kind of way. Whereas these are now sites of boredom that your work can bore you so you look for something else and you can look endlessly for something else. <laughs> your relationship can become boring so you can choose to perhaps enter into another relationship. The kind of food that you eat can be boring whereas for many older societies that is the food you were born into. That's the food you ate. And, but now increasingly for today you, know, you can go to uh, Portuguese restaurant or we got an Arabic restaurant. So I think even the kinds of things that people are supposed were getting bored with um, has changed. Um, that's one dimension. The other dimension, again, uh, what people are one. And particular- do, do you think of that in, in semi-sinister terms? Is that like the march of the market? Is that just, um, of uh, course, no, that's where the word yeah. is going. So that's fine. Yeah. One doesn't, again, one is not looking to judge. One yeah, is looking sure. to understand if no, there's I don't, something. Yeah, there's nothing sinister in the sense that, um, again, I think my attitudes have changed. Uh, sure. I don't think, um, uh, uh, I know I, I wouldn't call it sinister. Um, it's, I mean, for me, I mean, I have to say again. <laughs> is boredom a superficial experience? No, 
I, 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 I don't think so. If I, if I at all have a definitive answer, which I don't, um, I don't think <laughs> um, nothing that human beings experience is superficial. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know what it means. In fact, one of the things we should think carefully about, given that I'm, I'm from a discipline which always said that there are, these are deep structures and this is what is worth looking at, religion, whatever. Uh, what, if, what would be lost if we were to say that human beings in their relationships were nothing but superficial? And what would be lost? But right. if you were to say, look, that most of our, most, so if I meet Craig on the street, I don't know him, for example, and I say, he says to me, how are you? I, he doesn't want to know my life story. Right. It'd be okay if I just said to him, look, I'm fine, and we move on. And if that leads to a s sort of social networks where things function without too much violence, and I don't, I would no longer say that's, <laughs> that, that level of some, something what we can call superficiality is problematic for me. I mean, uh, again, it's not, again, it's, and I, I say this because I come from a discipline which has taught that these are the real structures, class is real, and religion is real, and kinship is real. But what would be lost in to say that we are all surface beings? Do you think anything would be lost? Uh, I don't think so. Mm. Um, I mean, as, so um, the, the question do, for do, me do, would do, be... Do you think, do, do you think uh, all the products, the consumer culture, yeah. do you think consumerism is taking its place or it's another dimension altogether? Is it casting a shadow on all of these? Is it transforming all of these or is there... Is there I think it's transforming all of these. I mean, I'll be extreme and I think, I think there's consumerism in both the context of a problem where feel, people feel there's a crisis that, you know, am I being hyper-consumerist? There's also this solution for a problem. So now most of the our, same domain. Yeah, most of our religious beliefs come from consumer culture, material evangelism. So it's both the context of people feeling that, oh, this is sort of, I'm too materialistic in my beliefs, so I will retreat to religion. But if that realm of religion comes to you via products that you buy, their religious theme parks, which the people go to, their televangelism. So what is outside consumer culture? So it's contradictory in its very nature. You don't like but that I, word? I, it's, I think, it's dialectical. But I think as Craig was saying that human beings, social lives are, are completely contradictory. But people live with those contradictions quite easily. Um, even the notion of revolution is, is it now, most people will see consumerism as a revolution. <laughs> that older political notion of revolution seems to have now largely gone off the radar for many people. Right. Sorry, I'm tempted by that last thing that was just said, but I will think about what I was actually just about to say, which is about boredom. Um, boredom is surely something that is socially produced and socially constructed because it kind of it assumes a kind of sense of being trapped. Absolutely. Um, because, uh, okay, people's life, if you grow up as a hunter-gatherer in ancient societies or whatever, there's no alternative and you don't see any alternative. That's simply how things are. I think so boredom comes in when you know that there are alternatives. There are, there, there's, there are other ways of living. Um, that you find attractive, but you don't feel able to get to get to that one way or another. So you're trapped in something that you find unfulfilling, but that you want to trans, but you and you would like to, you aspire to something else that you identify. But you could feel trapped in an absolute kind of way without any way having a relative comparison. Where are you on this, Raja? I mean, does is what does the philosopher in you? Uh, the philosopher. Well, I was listening. This is an interesting conversation, indeed. I mean, I. I think that, uh, so I wanted to ask you a question, which is what you meant by superficial experience, basically, but uh, because I think... Uh, so, but, let's, so let's try to define that, because but, I, I think it's important to use words with, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Sanjay, um, maybe an experience which is without a deep 
again the word deep shouldn't be a part of uh, the definition itself right. but sense of commitment right so you 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 are you're not okay dropping that at the drop of a hat you you would do that again and again and sure. so I'm, i i would maybe use the word commitment in that definition somewhere okay so then maybe then maybe we can distinguish between certain boredom experiences as uh, superficial and others as not being superficial at all i don't know i mean craig said something very interesting about in order to be bored you have to have see other possibilities i i'm not it's an interesting point i'm not sure whether it, and you said you can be bored in an absolute way but putting that question aside we we can distinguish between uh, superficial and uh, and deep experiences of boredom i mean what do i mean by that i mean so for example consider someone who is a product of consumer cult- culture right um she has just gotten bored with her latest iphone she says i don't want this anymore i'm bored with that right i don't have a problem describing this as a superficial boredom sure. but consider someone who is 65 years old 70 years old and who's just tired of life basically who has basically seen every thing and just doesn't want to continue living anymore he feels life's burdens or so she that feels experience like, permeates all of his or her life right absolutely right? so yeah. in, and in that sense this yeah. span is broader and right. that makes it deeper that right. sounds okay to you sanjay yeah i mean yes i'm uh, my only point was that i of course i mean you can one can have one should have positions that this is politically progressive position this is a politically reactionary position and it has certain effects etc um but i would still like to think about whether uh, what what we mean when we say something is superficial and um because a lot of this is has a very specific uh, kind of a, uh, politics of knowledge, kind of longer historical trajectory as to what is produced has been historically produced as superficial what is historically seen as as deep uh, so certain kind of books you might read for example in the 19th century in europe would have been considered as you know a mark of culture and other things not so without having any again very definitive answer i would still like to reflect upon but whether but are we are we are we getting to the territory of production versus consumption is it that is it that, that is it supposed to be difficult is it supposed to be because clearly there must be covariates right there are other things that are associated with any notion and you're right i think these things have their ebb and flow and there was a point in time when you know certain kind of things would be called pulp and it becomes classic after like 150 yeah. years and so yeah. on so yeah. that's always there yeah 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 i mean um and i i think that yeah it's it's i mean it's something that of course requires a much longer discussion about um, the significance of a term called superficiality and what is this historical uh, lineage the truth of the notion uh, you know the truths of every idea change depending on so what you know we might have considered superficial 100 years ago is no longer considered uh, superficial so i'm sort of more interested in the the, the trajectory that career of that particular notion what is the career superficiality right now um but it is true of course that within the cultures within which people live now uh um many things uh, that many perhaps some of us might here in this room consider superficial are regarded by people as really really significant in their lives right um you know right um, what do you have so, in mind uh Well, for example, iPhones. For example, that that we were just talking about. It may about. be very important for yeah. someone. And, and how and, do we? What is and the? And you can't just rubbish that yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't have an iPhone, but but uh, you know, but how? Do, what are the ways in which we have um, get a handle on something like that as to what it means to people? Given that obviously it's not, I think, as important as someone who might might desire euthanasia and say, "Look, I've had enough of life." Um, without meaning to kind of say that. Um, without meaning to say that um an iphone as is 
as important as wanting to have a have an early death or uh, death of one's choice. Um, I would yeah I, I I'm I'm still thinking about how important is it. Is this uh, in in the context of love or romantic love? Um, is are we entering the ethical territory, Raja? I mean, for example, in that phase after the settled phase or whatever you called it, does one persist with that phase where, let's say, whatever the initial phase is gone for ethical reasons? Is it a commitment? Is it is it? Does one persist with that because of a sense of moral duty? So, if you're as so, are you asking? Um, the the common reasons why people persist or yes. are you asking what what are the reasons that people should persist basically? why people persist um, or should both I and mean, both or, of them are seem like worthwhile questions yeah they're both worthwhile questions absolutely i'm just trying to figure out which one to answer so i'm not so i think i think there are various reasons why people continue with commitments basically after the settled stage um some of it is because they get into a rut and they don't they just don't think of alternatives and suddenly something happens to them they wake up and they say oh my god i wasted my, the last 10 years of my life, you know. Sometimes they do it um, because they feel uh, they have built a life with someone. And it's not a sense of duty whatsoever. It's just that, um, whereas when I was single, I used to do things a certain way. Now I am with this person and I do certain things a certain way. Now that person is part of my life. It's part of their identity. Right, exactly. So I don't need to summon the notion of duty in order for me to say I want to stay with that person. As a matter of fact, one of the worst reasons I think somebody could be with someone else is as a moral, is the notion of duty, basically. Because then, then the reason is outside of you. Is that why? Right. It's be, well, because commitments, I mean, the, the love relationships have a, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but love relationships um, do have a certain aspect to them, which is that we are supposed to be with that person because we want to be with that person. The notion of moral duty conjures up associations that separate it from desire. As a matter of fact, the entire Kantian notion of duty is precisely there to steer us in the right direction when our desires and inclinations steer us in the opposite direction, right? So part of our beliefs about love and commitment is that we are with someone because we want to be with someone. So, so to say to someone... I want to be with you out of duty is might come across as partly insulting. Yes. This doesn't mean that talk of duty has no place whatsoever ha- in relationships. Has, 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 I think it would come across as insulting today in most cultures. Has that always been the case? Well, um, I think so. I think it has been. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a cultural historian of love. I mean, I know quite sure. a bit about it, but I'm not. But I do think that it has been part of the language of love as this idea that you are freely yet out of desire wanting to be with that person. So, however, when it comes to marriage and relationships, we have a different picture on our hands. Their notions of duty and obligations become much more paramount. As a matter of fact, for example, in the history, if you look at the history of the institution of marriage, there were entire phases of human history in which the idea that you'd marry someone for love was absolute folly. I mean, you would just not do that. Uh, sure, you can fall in love to your heart's content, but when it comes to building a family and uh, please do what is, you, you find what someone is right. who can milk the cow three times a day, basically. I mean, that's what that's what it boils down to. It was more pragmatic, more absolutely. utilitarian. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we have combined them to get together. Some would say for uh, for for with disastrous consequences, actually. But for ill, for or worse, we have we have. Uh, does this does this notion of duty enter uh, enter the narratives when you know these revolutions are afoot? Um, what are the reasons why individuals decide to be a part of these sorts of things? 
how much of it is i don't know whether we can carry the notion of desire into this world maybe when that's just a desire for change or something uh, desire versus duty so we're talking about commitment and people willing to put in huge amounts of work probably over and above doing a day job in order to be able to engage in campaigning activity or, or, or something. So, yes, I mean, there's a certain sense of responsibility. And it goes much beyond just campaigning activities, right? And some of these Absolutely. revolutions are quite bloody. Well, they they sometimes are. Um, usually the most bloody parts of it are the, the repressions of revolutions rather than revolutions <laughs> themselves. Uh, as we right. know, uh, um, well, it turns out that the um, storming of the Winter Palace in 1917, in October 1917, um, I think there was like uh, one or two people who died because somebody was trampled or something like that. Whereas when it was restaged for Eisenstein's film of it, more people died because they were trampled to death in the actual <laughs> process. So, um, so it was actually not a particularly bloody uh, uh, movement. But then once you get into process of civil war, once you get into process of very serious political repressions of revolutionary movements, then you start to get the ratcheting up of violence. So how is so it kept on. together? Now, obviously, you know, as, as human beings, we've kind of, for example, in this context of love or whatever, we've come up with this institution of marriage or whatever. Is there, are there, obviously, when us to think of institutions that keep any kind of social order together, you know, even from, a, is, yeah. how much of this is premeditated or is it, what happens? I, we, can, we can think of it in the context of uh, the Russian Revolution. Well, a lot of the time is, uh, in revolutionary movements, a lot of the time is addressing issues as they come up and have the flexibility to be able to adapt to them. I mean, this is one of the great things about reading Lenin, I've, as I've mentioned to people before, that, um, you know, uh, everything that Lenin wrote was a, as a polemic with somebody else. And uh, so, you know, if you want to read something like someone like Lenin, you need to know what the other people were saying, or it's a bit like hearing one person speaking on a telephone. It's always You're not a dialogue. Sure what are the other, what's actually being responded to and what was actually meant. Uh, I mean, and this is a this this is a, a huge uh, a, a huge part of it. And uh, I mean, the greatness of his thought, in a sense, is that flexibility and uh, willingness to change approach and change direction repeatedly throughout um, circumstances rather than impose any abstract plans on uh, different uh, parts of uh, the movement or so on. This is, of course, something that changes then in the 1930s in Stalin's time when it's all about the imposition of uh, pre-formulated ideas um, sim simply because they're contingent on the interests of the regime at the particular time. It's so the daily life loses its spontaneity. Well, the thing is it loses its, con it loses its uh, organic contact with the movement itself. And, mm. and that... Uh, goes along with the uh, obliteration of democratic organization because uh, one thing uh, uh, one thing this requires is a, is a dynamic between um, the movement on the ground, the experiences of people, the input of their perspectives and so on, and a coherence and rationalization and formulation of a coherent way forward. And that's always a, a, a difficult dynamic uh, to institute and to maintain, but absolutely fundamental if you're going to maintain any kind of revolutionary movement. And when the, and, and in the absence of a, some kind of leadership organization with its roots w deep within a movement, uh, a, a, a revolution will never be able to um, achieve... Uh, anything like the outcome that was envisaged at the outset. How does consumerism work? I mean, how does it keep 
this commitment how does it keep uh, of course you know as far as the product is concerned the the product doesn't care about you dumping it the next moment once you've bought it so it's it's a, it's a special beast in that sense but how does this work is there is there as the parallel institution in in the context of inanimate objects well of course the product cares because the life of the product is the discourse around the product right so it's not that of course the product cares cares of course <laughs> to some extent so you know all my issues will bought and dumped in the sh- in, yeah, in so, the season I mean, all the same thing but, Yeah, well, the product does care because the life of the product is the the the, the language yeah. that surrounds the product, right? right. So language will say it will be a terrible thing for you to abandon your iPhone. This is the best. So the product does care. I wanted to also get back to uh, just to link what you're saying to what Craig was saying, what Raja was saying earlier. That you know, in the sense of commitment, for example, um, um, just as in within revolutions, these are you have a context, things already happening. There's a ground upon which revolutions happen, and they're not spontaneous. So it is with love. I mean, people don't fall in love with in wildly different class uh, situations. You normally fall in love with very specific social contexts, right? So that. You know, if I could just, since we're talking about Russia, amongst other things, you know, you, you could kind of paraphrase Marx and say that you know, it is true that people fall in love, but not exactly how they think they fall in love. You know, it's kind of very specific context within which people fall in love. Um, I think uh, it, on what has changed in terms of commitment and revolution, where revolution was a commitment to something quite specific and right. change, is that um, we have, um, I think. Uh, a much uh, uh, wider dissemination of the idea of multiple commitments. Hmm. That's not true necessarily. You have to have that one pure love, one pure revolutionary um, uh, objective. Uh, but in most of these cases, you can have only one revolution, right? Yeah. But um, I think that's changed. It can have strands, yeah. and I think the whole notion of commitments also change. Which I is think. which is where I think what Craig mentioned a while ago is very interesting. That maybe consumerism is a kind of revolution, which is more widespread. It gives everybody a sense of agency, and and so on and so forth. So you know, it's like feminism. So uh, at the end of nineteenth century in Europe, for example, large numbers of women were going out in the new malls and department stores, and for it was for them the first time they had gone out of home by themselves, spending things. And you could say that many of them experienced a kind of revolution. It's not feminism as we know it, but then how do we think about it? Is it a kind of revolution? Is consumerism a kind of revolution? Is shopping a revolution? See, for me, the only thing against consumerism is an environmental argument. I don't think consumerism is any worse than religious belief, for example. Right. I mean, I, right. I mean, I, I don't know what would be against it. The environmental argument is the only thing. I mean, <laughs> but I think religion historically probably, if if directed in in whatever way it's been directed, it's been as harmful as anything else. So I, that's why. So I'm now. I know. I, again, I I don't have definitive answers, but except to say that if I was to subscribe to some of the things that I did 15 years ago. But you somehow also seem to hold this position in a somewhat tentative, different kind of way, Sanjay. If 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 one is reading you right, in a way that I think most social life is completely tentative and diffident in the sense that I, right. I wouldn't I wouldn't have any. It's not possible for me to be to, any more sure about this. that. <laughs> any longer sure, yeah. Right. But then I I would have been in fact. In fact, I've gone older. I've become less sure. I was younger. I think I was much more sure about consumerism is completely fake, and what you need is real revolution. This is not feminism, but I'm not so sure now. <laughs> I think it's in, in really asymmetrical societies. We have to work out what are the minimal. Forms of autonomy that people can achieve. I'm not any longer waiting for the revolution. So, how does one think of this in terms of experience, right? So, obviously, you know, one lives for sixty, seventy, eighty years. You know, you maybe fall in love a few times. You, 
if you you're a part of a revolution or two maybe you are maybe you're not but it's it's more a sense of stasis so um again i'm not looking to make it judgmental but you you feel okay with as a sociologist thinking of life and human species and human beings and societies moving forward like this hundreds of years i don't i have no idea what will happen i don't i don't even think it's necessary to say or be i could say the 100 years from now there will be i don't know more consumerism there may even be less i i, I don't know except that i think right now what's happening is but uh, as far as you're concerned both more or less are the school it doesn't matter from one point of view yes in as much as i don't believe that i can now strongly identify that this is an authentic life or this is an inauthentic life so i just i'll end with one quick example in south africa one of the most significant ways in which black people black africans were kept away from a sense of autonomy is to d- deny them access to goods and commodities so in the i think it was oh maybe 10 years ago there's a big photograph um, in a newspaper african newspaper about uh, an ex anc member who was now a big businessman and there was a white woman i think she was russian in fact uh, who was lying naked and he was eating food off her body for his birthday and there was great criticism how can someone from the anc be part of this and <laughs> and his argument which is a argument about consumerism and race was said that he said i didn't join the revolution to be poor right so and so and there's interesting ways in which people imagine what gives them freedom i guess in one ways i have to think about it rather than have any at present have any strong position saying that kind what that guy did in south africa is an inauthentic form of revolution that's not what the african national congress is all about right so because race and consumerism was fundamental to apartheid right is this the key word raja freedom now whether it's love or it's revolution or it's buying this or that or you know having this meal in this interesting way are um, are all of these uh, what are these pursuits of Well I mean the, you know the notion of freedom and autonomy I think uh these notions are a little bit overrated morally speaking and by this I don't mean that people should not have freedom and should not have autonomy no I mean obviously we should have freedom we should have autonomy but sometimes people forget that sometimes people forget that just making autonomous choices doesn't mean that you are making good choices right basically um we do have and you mean good in the i mean in the, the moral ethical, sense in the, in moral, the moral sense, sense. yeah absolutely yeah um so i can give tons of examples that are very controversial so for example i think certain practices that um certain ob- members of oppressed groups have participated in uh you have some people on the left for example in the united states they say well uh, they are some of these individuals are doing it freely and my response is well okay fine but does that mean that they are are actually doing good moral choices right. uh, for instance so to me so free- what what is good moral choice like um, um, what what are you invoking here just so that we get the register right so i i don't know i mean i think it depends on the example but i think a good moral choice would be a choice in which you are not um harming someone else unnecessarily you mean in the kantian sense in the kantian sense or even in the now utilitarian or consequentialist sense basically a choice that does not uh end up perpetuating or help perpetuate a certain oppressive system for for example uh, a choice to participate in certain practices that are um, harmful uh, that come at the expense of exploiting a large segment of the population etc etc so just because someone makes a choice doesn't is just the beginning of the story as far as i'm concerned not the doesn't tell us everything about it so in that respect i find freedom and autonomy to be necessary conditions for living a good life but they're not sufficient to use just the language of sufficient and necessary conditions basically and do you think uh, you know if we think of 
uh, you know, the, the, the consumerist aspects that Sanjay has spoken about a little bit. And where are you on this question of falling in love with inanimate objects? Is, is that very different? I know we touched upon this a little while ago as well. I mean, I don't know. It's a hard question. I, I do know people get very passionate about those objects. You know, they have got to get the latest iPhone. They, ha- they, can, they have got to go see the latest X-Men movie. You know, uh, I've been guilty of that myself. Um, I don't know whether I would call it falling in love as opposed to just a strong attachment to something. Because we have to m- make sure not to make the mistake of identifying part of love with other things. So, for example, romantic love has a certain strong desirous aspect to it. I mean, love is constituted to a large extent by desires. But it's still a part of it. But it's a part of love, exactly. Whereas when it comes to consumer culture, I would characterize characterize it as being mostly Mostly consisting of desires, right? Mm. And so there's that commonality between them, but that doesn't mean that they are to be identified with each other. Uh, So that, I mean, that's basically where I stand on it. And... um, I know that the word consumerism is often used in different in different ways, different senses. Sometimes people use it, but I, I mean, I defer to Sanjay because he's the expert, but some people use it in a descriptive sense where they say, for example, now we are consuming more things or compared to other time periods in the, in the history of humanity, we are definitely consuming Consumption more. Consumption itself. Is, exactly. Mm-hmm. But then you have the notion of consumerism, which is morally tinged. Basically, the idea that something has gone wrong with a culture that is consumerist. And then you can, you can, you can analyze what has gone wrong and various ways. And one way I like to think about it is precisely this notion of objectification, which is that we have turned the object into an end in itself as opposed to looking at it as a means to something else. Exactly. Because, you know, when when one speaks of, at least when when you were talking about a little while ago, a lot of the love can be other-centered. And, right, I think any any love for an object would be self-centered. Self-centered, yeah. Is that that too simplistic, Sanjay? No, no, I I don't think it's simplistic. I mean, I agree with Raja, for example. I think we should be thinking about the effects of whatever people do. Does it lead to more violence? I don't know. If people are practicing, for example, tetrodectomy, what is it? It's, it's a choice, but what does it actually mean in terms of gender and right. what happens to women? I think that's really important. That's why I was saying that um, for me, it's uh, if, if, if I'm thinking about consumerism, it's about the effects of consumerism. Is it worse than religious belief? I, I don't know. Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes not. Are there, are there moral choices and moral dimensions? Of course, one can only... Think of it in consequentialist terms, maybe in this in, in this context. But um, I mean, are there are there moral duty, moral choice questions in the very act of consumption? Um, I don't know. Again, I think you know these are very shifting terms. Right. I think in an academic context would mean one thing. Uh, if you ask people in a popular kind of a context, uh, what moral means could something else? It's like the term middle class, right? right? The middle in India, for example, irrespective of who you speak to, a very rich person, a very poor person, we ask them about class, they will say, "I'm a middle class person," <laughs> because it is a it is a claim to being a particular kind of person, right. not into conspicuous consumption, not corrupt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Similarly. I think these, this depends on the context that you ask people about. So for someone like Raja, you know, in, in the discipline of philosophy, notions of morality and ethics have a very specific tra- trajectory. In the wider world, they may have completely different trajectories, uh, different, different meanings that people attach to them. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Do, do revolutions struggle with uh, moral issues? 
Well, massively. Moral uh, doubts. Of course, there's a certain moral economy, if you like, uh, involved in all social movements of whether people think that they're being ripped off or whether they think they're getting a good deal or whatever. I mean, there's all all of these... Uh, and and, I mean it and even whether from... something is right or not, I mean, senses of justice that... Uh, that no, but even from this. the side of the revolutionaries against the ones they're looking to topple or overthrow. Because... Well, that the system that they that toil under is immoral, um, leading to vast amounts of poverty, uh, leading to um, repressions uh, and yeah, huge luxury on the basis on on the part of certain limited, very limited part of the population. So that certainly. aspect of it is entirely non-tentative. It has its. Uh well, we all have our sense of right and wrong, and uh, they are socially specific. It's like our notions of freedom. What means what freedom means to one group of people is quite the opposite of what it means to someone else. Uh, um, you know, there's a big difference between uh, having freedom uh, to organise to uh, stop your employer being able to fire you, and the employer having the freedom to uh, fire you at will. <laughs> um, they, these mean different things. There's freedom from freedom to. Uh, all of this has to be very much socially embedded, I think. Um, but uh, interesting to link this to um, uh, consumerism and the the, the ideas of a con of a consumer culture. Um, one of one of the things that we might think about is this notion of fetishism that Marx uses this notion of fetishism, and that's why it it may be interestingly related to religion as well. Right. Um, and whether these uh, the the appeal of certain pro uh, um, products, the appeal of certain um, ideas, and so on, are because they are kind of ersatz versions of real social drives and real social. Um, uh, discontent and but a sense that people cannot um if if uh, the strength of consumerism, I think, is to a certain extent inversely correlated to levels of collective organization and class struggle. What do you mean by the that? more the, the more <laughs> workers are in, the more workers and the masses are involved in collective movements uh, towards a particular goal, a liberatory movement towards a particular goal the less the appeal of products in and of themselves. Um, these things uh, then are, uh, become is, important. Is that, is that empirically rigorous? What was the status of uh, consumer, consumer brands, consumer culture in you know this, this post-revolution Soviet Russia? Well, of course, uh, to have access to those goods, that means you have a certain amount of economic background, no, isn't but it? Is, is the reason why you say resources. that uh, out of reasons of solidarity? So the workers know that these things are being made somewhere and somebody else is being oppressed? Is it is it that kind of a thing? Or uh, well, yes, else? it can be. Um, it certainly can be if you want to campaign against sweatshops uh, and uh, and so on for proper workers' rights. Uh, but no, I was actually thinking about um, the uh, movements within societies and uh, when people start to engage in solidarity action, when people start to pursue collective uh, aims, then replacing those with uh, individualized uh, passive consumption uh, becomes less appealing um, on a on a, on a 
uh, mass level. That that isn't. I mean, in a sense, people orient on the magic of what I'll be a more sexy person if I have this kind of car. I'll be I'll be more appealing if I have this kind of phone. This becomes less attractive, I think, under conditions where you're saying, well, let's address the entire problems of the society uh, on a does, mass does basis. That, does that really happen? I think so, yes. I think, uh, I mean, are societies that are involved in revolutionary transformations one in which consumer goods are an, en uh, an end in themselves? Do uh, capitalist class um, try to flood markets where there is revolutionary transformations taking place? Shiny things and shiny objects. <laughs> They'll do quite the opposite, won't they? Um, if there's a revolution What's your answer to this, Sanjay? I think because what Craig is saying is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to desperately believe in what he's saying. <laughs> Which is why I ask whether it happens. Because in a way, we're going to this question of why does consumerism work, yeah. right? I mean, because there has to be a reason why it yeah. works. There's a reason yeah. why yeah. It, it must be tapping into something within us. I think, and, and I think what we've touched upon indirectly yeah, sure. is whether what it taps into is love, right? It, it, yeah. Or th that ability to love or something that to that yeah. effect. Now, obviously, yeah, but, more fractional... But, I mean, just as the Communist Manifesto, for example, is one of the greatest kind of um, um, books written about capitalism and what the good things about capital, why capitalism <laughs> is such a great, great system, um, as opposed to other systems that Marx is talking about. I, it may, I mean, and I, I, I you know, I'm, you know, is my uh, when Craig was talking about, I was really thinking about, um, you know, optimism of the will uh, of the will <laughs> that you know. But I think that uh, the notion of collective solidarity and political action and being able to take part in consumer cultures may not any longer be as mutually at, at, exclusive. At odds with each other. As, as I think people seem to do both, you know, believe, believe genuinely in political action of the kind that gets rid of sweatshops. Um, uh, but also... In fact, that can be some kind of a counter movement within capitalism. You know, you could have all the goods. They could yeah. be labels, no sweatshops used. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and I mean, so on. I think capitalism is, as I say, consumer culture provides both a sense of this is a problem, but I mean, I say it provides the solution. I'm not saying approvingly. I'm just right. saying that uh, descriptively. It seems to offer something. It, offers, it seems to offer both. So now you can have, so, you know, uh, uh, not tested on animals kind of products and sweatshop free products. Right. But of course, it's still capitalism. It's, it's, not, it's not something else. It doesn't come to us. Capitalism provides both environmental destruction and their patent promise of saying that this is green, and the green, green capitalism. What yeah, the hell is green capitalism? I have no idea. There is no such thing as green capitalism. So it's, it's that curious system, and I'm interested in how it works. I don't have an answer. That it, pro it is both the really strong grounds for causing anxiety amongst people, but also apparently providing the answer, which people seem to accept. So I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, do you think of, uh, Raja, do you think of love in collective terms at all? Because I think I asked you a version of this question a little while ago. Now there is a way in which, um, at least in the example or the kind of world that Craig was sketching out, um, it seemed like he thought that there could be a world or there is a world or there are parts of the world where, you know, you don't, don't take act part in consumption actions and so on out of solidarity or whatever. So maybe there's a hypothesis and it's probably difficult to test that on the fly just now. Is there something similar about love? Um, well, I mean, there is, um, there is um, 
people have talked about universal love before, uh, love of humanity at large. Um, so, but if you're referring specifically to romantic love, I don't, I don't. I mean, part of the reason why I say no is not because I have I have empirical studies that show this. But part of the reason it's is, meant to be between two. Yeah, people. it's conceptual. I mean, I mean, philosophers have talked about romantic love being polyamorous to some extent, where you fall in love with two or three people. But I mean, if you say that you're going to fall in love with a chunk of humanity, that's stretching <laughs> the concept quite a bit, let right. alone all of humanity. So, so there is such a thing as universal benevolence, compassion, sympathy. Uh, People do feel compassion towards other human beings, uh, towards animals, non-human beings, obviously. Um, so, yeah, there is there is definitely a counterpart to that. Um, the question is how many people can pull it off, how many people can pull it off for the right reasons, and how many people can pull it off in a consistent manner. Because one of the things about emotions is that they can be very fickle. And they can depend on your moods, they can depend on your age, they can depend on your circumstances. So one of the, the one of the crucial features about love is its constancy. Um, and so I say to myself, someone is a lover of humanity, you know. The immediate questions that should come on the heels of this one is, has he always been like this? Is he more or less consistent across situations? I mean, of course, you're allowed to have your private moments without, <laughs> you know, worshipping at the altar of humanity. But there has to be a certain element of consistency to it. So what's puzzling for you? What's do you think this this humdrum phase of let's call it romantic love and bracket it only within that is that is that a philosophical problem? Of course, it's a it's a it's a it's an existential problem. Um, it's an existential problem. It's also a philosophical problem, at least in the sense that we do have, at least within a certain Western tradition, we do have certain beliefs about love. Uh, we believe, for example, that, about romantic love. So we believe that the object of the romantic love is unique. Uh, we believe that love is more or less constant forever. Um, we believe that love is more or less exclusive, you know. But then you have the reality of the world, which is that people seem to fall in, out of love multiple times in their lifetimes, you know. So it becomes at least one philosophical question, which is to investigate the truth of those beliefs about romantic love. Another philosophical question is to... And, and what happens there? Do you just go and play with the definition of love Yeah, you, you play with the definitions and then you test them against experiences, you test them against possible, against other possibilities, even if those possibilities are not anchored in experience. And even, even moralities are not fixed, right? They're always changing. So morality doesn't enter the picture here because we are talking about the definition, the conceptual elucidation of the concept of love. And right. now, of course, I some philosophers... But do the way you do it in 500 BC is different from the way you do it, do it in 2100 No, this is a philosophical eternal question. So love right. is love, basically. <laughs> I know this might not be a very popular notion, but yeah, that's sure. how you do it, right? Sure. So we, the, you can define love in moral ways because, and I think uh, any definition of love that is non-moral is not going to succeed because I think... To love someone partly means that you care for that person for their own sake, basically, or for that object for its own sake. So any definition of love that excludes that element is a non-starter as far as I'm concerned because it will clash with the phenomenon of love as we see it. So, yeah. So what's the future? Why don't we end with this? What's the future, Sanjay? Where is this headed? Because obviously this, you know, until 150 years ago, this, this subjectivity of being in love with, let's say, products and this, that didn't exist. Now, as we if we... Obviously, these are thought experiments as you try to fast forward this 50, 100, 200, 500 years. Do you have an inkling for where all of this is headed? I'm not suggesting you have the answer. But no, no. I, I suppose answer? in terms of your question, what is the future? One answer would be, you know, how long is a piece of string? I mean, I, right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there is no... Uh, in, in sense, I don't think... So I can't... The only thing I can say is that 
uh, is that it's not possible to say is that things will intensify mm. as as they are that 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 it could well be that what happens hundred years from now was something that happened a hundred years before now. Yeah. So there is no kind of unilinear kind, kind of, of cyclicality. A, yeah, it. it's like people are eating sort of unprocessed food uh, because they think it's closer to nature. Whereas a hundred years ago with sort of industrial evolution, people wanted more and more kind of industrially produced food. Because they uh, thought it was safe. Because they thought whatever. that was modern and that was what it is to be advanced. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it's not possible to say that these things, the uh, processes of now will intensify, people become more atomized and people become sort of more consumerist. Maybe not at all. I think one way to ask this question is in the context of euphoria, excitement. Where would one go for yeah. those peak experiences? And, yeah. you know, you've touched upon religion a few times. You've yeah. touched upon... I think religion continues to... These things don't disappear. I'm not saying that religious belief, for example. In fact, America is probably the most religious country in the world. I mean, even in India now, if the president says, God bless India, there will be a scandal, right? Right. But in America, it's not considered a big deal at all. Iran right. is perhaps far... You know, in America, as religious as Iran in many ways but I, there's religion and there's religiosity and there's a way in which you know you I mean even, I would sure. say both I mean America is a classic example of consumer culture and and, and religiosity in Walmart and the linkage with Walmart and Christian the Christian right is very strong sure so I'm saying that some of the things that we have now they influence their relationship of human beings with them like religion will continue to exist the forms change of course uh, there may or may not be more religious theme parks as there are now. People may come back to small churches, synagogues, and, and, and whatever temples. But I think these things continue to be very significant. Uh, so, what's the future? What, if if you had to take a guess, what is if you had to visualize the world 150, 200 years out, 50 years out, whatever? What's what's it likely to be like? Obviously, in the context that we're discussing, and I I, I get that string business. Yeah, um, in the sense that well. Uh, it's. I think that many of the things that continue to be important for people now will continue to be important. What will happen, perhaps, if any say change is going to happen, which will be different from now, is that the context within which religion and kinship and love uh, uh, continue to be uh, to be positioned will change. But I think also uh, the only thing, if I'm going to make any kind of strong statement, <laughs> I think that um, you know it seems to me that the notion of commitment, love and relationships will become much more flexible than even they are now. Um, because I think there is certain, not a loss, uh, but a, if you want it, like a loss of innocence, if you like, that there is something called pure love. Uh, that is something called forever commitment, commitment. I think those things are changing. And I, perhaps we will have a world where in terms of love and relationships and commitments, people become much more used to the notion of say, multiple commitments without necessarily the kind of jealousy that it might produce or the violent effects that produces. That's about the only thing that I can see. Sure. And that for me is a good thing. Sure. What's your take on this, Craig? My prognosis for the next 150 years. Yes, in, in, uh, well, in, 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 the, in, in this context. Well, one of the things for sure is that, uh, no, things are not just going to be a more intensified version of what they are today. I absolutely agree uh, on that one. Uh, Capitalisms is a far too unstable system uh, for, uh, for for that to be the case. So um, you, you mean it, so you're implying that there would be some kind of self-correction or whatever and people would act or? Well, I mean, we do, I mean, the thing is, we don't know, do we? The, um, the, the, um, 
the economy now is so incredibly um, complex and uh, integrated that uh, economists have no idea whether there'll be another recession or when there'll be, well, they know there will be another recession, but when there'll be another recession, they've singly failed to predict the last one, for example, uh, very, very dramatically. Clearly, it, it won't happen. I mean, you always get all of these uh, projections that people make like, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, people said Japan will be the largest economy in the world. There's nobody ever talking about that anymore. People now talk about China's going to be the well, biggest economy fine. in that's the world. that's fine. That's not an economics question, so, I think. But, but it is in a sense, isn't it? Because these uh, in questions... In terms of social order, social transformation, the yeah. way we organize, the way we think of there our will social be very, life there, and, okay, and being. There, there will be very serious social crises and very serious social transformations that will take place over the next 150 years, that of which I think we can be sure. Exactly what direction they will take will depend on an awful lot of things. It'll depend on objective conditions about the economy and so on, but it will also depend on all sorts of subjective conditions, especially about levels of organisation, ways in which people build uh, alternative narratives, ways in which people are able to organise all of these things will determine the trajectory of how things will go. Um, um, certainly, if we have any kind of historical consciousness about the last century, it's so difficult for us to... Um, uh, Even begin to predict it, anything it, it, about to, the to next any, Anything to, to extrapolate, because history never repeats itself. Sure. Um, if it did, we, don't, we wouldn't need theory, we'd need, we'd need memory. Right. Um, but but as it is, we, what we're always engaged in is trying to discern what are the most fundamental structures of social order and social change from those that are less uh, less fundamental. And I don't mean that in terms of you know genuineness of experience, authenticity in that sense. But which of our social structures are the most fundamental? Are the are the, are the ones that really will have to change? Uh, that 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 are really um, sure. uh, unstable and will have massive consequences if they do change. Uh, and that's a theoretical question that needs to be brought into constant uh, connection with empirical reality, history, and so on. We'll end with you, Raja. Where are we headed? What's happening? Well, I'm kind of. It, it looks like what's the future of pure love? I think Sanjay didn't seem very optimistic. Well, um, I mean, uh, I'm kind of lucky. We shouldn't here. just change the definition <laughs> of pure love. I'm lucky here because both both Sanjay and uh, Craig have to, uh, you know, we're addressing uh, social factors that change, which are kind of more difficult. Uh, mine are uh, well, at least I think that love is a pretty universal tendency. So I think for the foreseeable future, <laughs> we're going to keep falling in love. And part of the reason is because <laughs> love is intimately connected with sexual desire. And as right. long as we live, we're going to sexually desire. Um, so that's going to happen. And that you can project like a thousand years. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, forever. Absolutely. Even when the human is gone, the animal will remain. And that <laughs> um, But I also think as long as we keep having children, we're going to have we're going to continue with the commitment. And I don't so see I don't see humanity ceasing to have children anytime soon, despite the fact that we know that the world is coming to a horrible you know, it's going to be pretty difficult to live in in the next 50 years or so. So, um, so yeah, commitment will be there because we have to. I mean, we raise children and at least until they are up to a certain age, well, then we leave each other. But short commitments will, will be with us for a while. That's like 15 years, 16 year long marriages. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's good enough. That's <laughs> so, good enough. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you. you.